Welcome to Oh Malort, Chicago History You Never Learned in School. Alyssa's my name and Disco's my game. I am joined by John Zinn. How are you? Good. Happy bleak midwinter, everyone. Happy bleak midwinter. Now, I want to start off. I made the mistake of reading the reviews, which you should never do, and I know better. I don't blame you for not listening to the outro. But no, I customize them for each episode. I'm going to say this up front. Subscribe, leave a five-star review, and tell your friends. Also, listen to the outro. It might provide a laugh. So, John, we're going to talk about a sports promotion that was either a home run or the worst strikeout of all time. Okay. Some might say it was a last dance. Okay. Any guesses? Disco demolition? Yes, we're going to talk about disco demolition. Oh, gosh. Okay. You know, nothing like a baseball game in a bleak midwinter. Listeners, I know that other podcasts such as The Dollop and You're Wrong About have covered this. But I assure you, John and I will provide local flavor. So what do you know about it? Just... I mean, the, I don't know. It was it was publicity stunt ish, right? I don't know the reasoning behind it, but I know they he took Steve Dahl, right? That's who we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, a whole bunch of disco albums. He'd been ripping on disco. It, it was like a disco backlash, and they burned them in this big bonfire at Wrigley. Socks Park, Kaminsky. Socks. Oh, was that Socks? Okay. I mean, and that's pretty much what I knew. I saw, I saw it on VH1, you know, top 100 moments in rock history or music history. And what I saw was Steve Dahl blew up some records. I had no idea. This was crazier than people relying on the Texas power grid. Okay. Or Jason Aldean thinking that a town of 150,000 is small. Now, did you ever have a disco phase? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I had one in my late teens, early 20s. Mm -hmm. And what do you know about the, about the history of disco? Well, I believe that it started in black clubs in New York, didn't it? Yes. It started as an underground movement for primarily Latinx, black, and gay people. Yeah. And then it got the Glinda treatment, and it became popular. Mm -hmm. In 1977, we had Saturday Night Fever. And then radio stations started switching formats. And I think everybody agrees there was a market saturation. Like you had Rod Stewart coming out and doing disco songs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I owned Mickey Mouse Disco. Mm -hmm. Not to... Uh mentioned the infamous Ethel Merman disco album. I made it. <laughs> I made a note about that, but it didn't make it into the script. So thank you for that. A little background here. Bridgeport, the neighborhood where the stadium is located, was working class and hella racist. <laughs> and Thad Bosley, Bosley, a star player, once got encircled by a crowd when he took a wrong turn leaving a game. Luckily, someone recognized him. Now we got to talk about our cast of characters, starting with Steve Dahl, 
how would you describe Steve Dahl? I don't I, I don't know if there's an analog for him. I, a, a big outsized radio personality. Mm-hmm. Start there, right? Right. I, I mean, he inspired Howard Stern. And locally, they compare him to mankind. Little known tidbit. Dahl's wife, Janet, was a lawyer who brought a defamation case against Mancow for talking shit about her. Did you know that? I did not know that, no. Yeah, it got settled out of court. Wow. Yeah, because people really hate Mancow, so that should give... And, you know, he's he's got a family. He's got four kids. We know people who know him. They just... He seemed like a, just a normal family guy, but was a shock jock. Yeah. Yeah. And he worked at a station in Detroit when that station switched from rock to disco. In 1978, he got a job with an ABC rock and roll station and moved to Chicago. Shortly thereafter, he married Janet because she would only move with him if they were married. And he quit his job on Christmas Eve, 1978, when his new employer switched to Disco. Old disco. So he is now twice burned, once shy. He was playing like classic rock stuff. Is that right? Yeah, he's a rock and roll guy. Yeah. <laughs> to me, a disco station, like a only disco station, honestly sounds more annoying than 93.9 playing around the clock Christmas music starting at the beginning of November. 24-year-old right. doll was pissed about being fired. Mm-hmm. He was 24. Right. When I was that age, I was managing a Barnes and Noble cafe. Right. Which I remember. Yeah. <laughs> Good times. He got a job at 97.9 WLUP, The Loop, where he ranted about disco and blew up records or made a sound blowing up records. He'd do a record scratch. Mm-hmm. And then make a record blowing up sound. And he was just mad at the station, but it was a shtick. It resonated with people on the south side of Chicago. Mm. So I am going to send you a link. And I'm going to have you go to the link and press play. What's happening, baby? I'm loving that story. My name is Tony. Did you heard of Docs? Hello. Hey, tell him down. Let me get you another pina colada. I mean, what are we doing this exclusive pizza go anyway, you know? I mean, it's almost a hundred dollars to be joined. I'm just about to die. I don't just like my white briefcase soon. My cold cup and red plate and bottle of Italian snuggles here. You the hell? Come on. I wear tight pants. I always stuff a sock and in Oswald's face. I think you get a sense of it. So that gives you a sense of how far he went with that. Yeah. Which I had no idea that existed. A lot of hatred for the fashion and the perceived money spent too. Yeah, we'll get into that. I'm sure. And 
last last October, uh, PBS released a documentary. Yeah, documentary, yes. yeah. Okay. I spelled it wrong. Called The War on Disco. And I'll put it in the show notes. The next character is Mike Vec. And he is baseball royalty. His dad was Bill Vec, who, in addition to being in the Baseball Hall of Fame as an owner, was the P.T. Barnum of Major League Baseball. Oh. And, yeah, and his grandfather had owned the Cubs. Okay. He's a fascinating guy. The dollop did an episode on him as well as Disco Demolition, like the same episode. And he himself is his own character, but I don't have time to get into him. Okay. And in preparation, I watched a documentary <laughs> on Netflix called The Saint of Second Chances, which is about Mike. And I highly recommend it. One might say this was all about staying alive. So... In 1975, his dad buys the Chicago White Sox. He's grown. His dad brings him along to be a gopher. And in fact, he had a t-shirt that made that said owner's son. Okay. Fortunate son might have been more appropriate. Yep. That's Mike Beck. He becomes the promotions director. How would you describe the difference between the White Sox and the Cubs? It is a very different feeling going to both games. I don't, without getting into stereotypes, uh, it is different crowds, right? Right. It's different crowds. And here's the thing also to know about the Cubs is no matter how bad they are, people go to their games. Yeah, true. Not the same with the White Sox. Mm, got it. The Becks are responsible for the exploding scoreboard. Okay. And Mike's job was to put the fireworks into the scoreboard. Okay. In fact, he and his dad are responsible for every promotion we see in Major League Baseball. For example, the White Sox franchise was poor, and they wanted to sign Chet Lemon. So Mike came up with the idea of a VIP experience. Mm-hmm. Skyboxes. He invented skyboxes. Wow. Wow. <laughs> he did the math, like, oh, this is how much we need. Elitist here, just between you and me. What was your first skybox? Uh, it might have been. It would have been the Cubs. Um, it might have been the one uh, where we used to work. Mm-hmm. I, that was my first skybox, but yeah. I did see a 1985 Tigers game. My parents are like, don't we have good seats? And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, where would you rather sit? And I pointed to the skybox. I knew. Yeah. I, I, my most memorable skybox was working for a different theater. I, um, one of the stars of the play was saying the, the, was set to sing, um, one of the stars was set to sing the Star Spangled Banner, and the other one was going to sing the seventh inning stretch. So we went, and there was a tornado in the middle of the game. Oh, um, so wow. We, we were, me and a couple other people were there with the whole cast. There was a tornado. And so we're like, what do we do? What do we do? And they're like, um, 
vacate, vacate, vacate. And we messed around a little bit. When we started leaving the skybox, they're like, no, you missed the window. Now you have to stay. So (laughs) we stayed during a two and a half hour rain delay when they finally called the game and left under torrential conditions. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. So they're doing what? But free food. Free food and drink. The Sox are doing all of these promotions. They have a Polish night. They have all the promotions. And they did a disco celebration, which was quite successful. But they couldn't leave you this way. They had an idea to host an anti-disco night. LUP approached the Sox. And Chicago Magazine has an oral history. So Mike Beck had this to say. Somebody told me there was a guy blowing up disco records on the air. I couldn't get to the station fast enough. I'm scaling the Hancock building where WLUP's offices were. When, when he, I went to call on Dahl when he got off the air, I didn't have any idea it was going to drop. Dahl didn't know if it was going to drop. Steve Dahl did not want to do the promotion. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he said this about it. They asked me to do it. And I said, I don't know if that's a good idea. The socks weren't drawing. I didn't really want to do it. I would have to stand up there and blow up records in front of 5,000 people. This brings us to July 1979, where the socks are playing a twilight double header against my Detroit Tigers. Showed up. It was teen night. And if people showed up with a disco album, the cost of admission was 98 cents. Wow. Because the radio, 97.9. Uh-huh. 4,300, people. But typically, around fifteen to 20,000 people attended games. Okay. But for this double header... They had about 59,000 people in attendance. Insane. Plus 50K people outside. They were crawling up the stadium to sneak in like J6ers into the Capitol building. I can't believe there was that many people that wanted to do this. (laughs) And traffic was backed up to O'Hare. Oh, my God. Yes, I imagine. No doubt. So for non-locals, that's about 17 miles of of highway. They had security for 35,000 people. Yeah. Yeah. Or more specifically, individuals who wanted to enjoy baseball. Right. Exactly. Quoting from Vec, the security guys call me and say the kids outside trying to get into the park are rattling the portable ticket booths. The old guys inside the booths are worried and anxious. So we moved 15 security guards from the field out there. It was my mistake. Okay, here we go. I found an interview with an attendee named Kevin Hickey. And this is what he had to say. Steve Dahl struck a chord with me when I was a kid. My friends and I hated disco. But by 1979, everybody was listening to it. You felt like you you weren't pretty enough or skinny enough to fit into it. I was a chubby kid. 
I remember Steve saying the reason he hated disco so much was because he couldn't buy a three-piece white suit off the rack. That stuck with me because I couldn't either. Wow. I'm sure you're going to get to it, but oh my God, like where it came from to this perceived elitism of it is, mm -hmm. is, is shocking, really. I looked up this dude because he's a chef. He started his career at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills, eventually okay. made it to Chicago, where he worked for both the Ritz and Four Seasons. He won some Michelin stars and opened the Duck Inn. And in 2015, the Chicago Tribune named him the Chef of the Year. Wow. Which is all funny because he kind of became elitist. Right. I checked, and the uh, Bridgeport establishment survived COVID. It's still going good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, where they have craft cocktails. Mm -hmm. So this is from Bob Chiconi. He's a Kaminsky Park vendor. I grew up on the South Side, and you grew up trying to be tough. Tough guys don't dance. When you're that age, you define yourself by what you're opposed to as much as what you're for. There wasn't a war to oppose. There weren't a lot of options. Disco was an obvious thing. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah, DJ saved his life. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read. Well, not to, and also just one comment about that comment. Not I'm to, um, you know, not to have a heart of glass. But couldn't he still listen to PCBC and such? You could still do it. You could still do it. I mean, you could. But it felt like it was becoming the dominant culture, especially on the radio or something like that. Right. It was just everywhere. Ethel Merman disco album. Yeah. Yeah. Enough said. I'm going to read. Well, and we'll get into that later. I'm going to read from a Daily Beast article entitled. The Rock fans rioted to kill Disco, dash, at a Chicago baseball game. Yeah. The first game was not going well for the White Sox, but things got worse towards the end as the crowd grew increasingly boisterous. Most of them weren't there to see baseball. They were there to riot against Disco, and they were ready to get the party started. Records mid-play, records began to rain down on the field as loud chants of disco sucks drowned out the action. This is a quote from White Sox outfielder Rusty Torres. The first disc that was thrown missed me by a couple of inches, missed the right side of my head by a couple of inches. They're going, Rusty, disco sucks. And being really loud and quote we're gonna kill disco today and disco is dead and this and that and i'm going no i was just at a discotheque last night how are you going to achieve that it's raining records now would be the time to tell you that beer cost about 20 cents okay and people brought their own liquor in mm -hmm. and a certain odor permeated the stadium mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. also the legal drinking age was 19 okay <laughs> what can go wrong what yeah all contributors yeah uh -huh. in addition to throwing the vinyl discs discs people also threw 
beer bottles and cherry bombs on the field. Players are wearing their batting helmets in the outfield. God. A mess. The game ends, and Dahl came out in a Jeep dressed in an army uniform with a box that was eight feet by four feet by six feet. They detonate the box. They don't set it on fire. They actually have a pyrotechnician on hand. The one thing they planned well for. And the records flew 25 to 30 feet in the air while blowing a hole in center field and blasting chunks of it into the stands. Now I'm going to send you a picture, another picture. I'm going to send you this time a picture. Because I would just, a picture here is worth a thousand words. Did you get it? Yeah. Oh, I have seen some of these of the anarchy on the field. Holy. The anarchy on the field, but just how dorky Doll looks. Yeah. (laughs) Ridiculous. And that vat of records is really big. They had others. They only brought one out. And then so many people showed up that that's how they had their own records. They just stopped accepting them. Yeah. So Dahl leaves, gets on his Jeep. I've watched interviews. and They were scared out there, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is from Dave Gabarek, who is another vendor at the park. I remember like it was yesterday. One long-haired kid jumped out of left field, ran across the outfield, slid into second base, picked up the bag, and waved it. That's what started it. People were sliding down the foul poles. I remember seeing photos of that. Yeah. They start a bonfire. Uh Uh-huh. They tore the urinals off the wall. Oh, God. God. And while I didn't hear about anyone shitting on the infield, one eyewitness saw people scoring a home run at third base. Mm. La Freak. Real cute. I, I hope they didn't have a love hangover. <laughs> Jeez. So this is from Les Grobstein. He was a Chicago radio sportscaster. I remember people in the left field upper deck pouring lighter fluid down a left field foul pole, which was metallic. So it wasn't going to burn. I witnessed that. I did. Right. <laughs> burn, baby, burn. Oof, it was not going to burn. No. <laughs> Tries to start a metal hole on fire. Yeah, geez. You're kidding me. A- another attendee ended up being a Tribune sports writer. Mm-hmm. Said, at some point, I went into the Tigers dugout. We were messing around with the Jack Daniels we had brought. Tigers coach Alex Grammas was there. He said, is that your bottle? I said, yeah. He said, hand it to me, would you, son? I said, yes, sir. I gave him the bottle. Then he asked me to leave the dugout. He was very nice about it. There were 7,000 people on the field. Oh, my God. Now we're going to get to what I think is one of the funniest parts of this entire event. This is from Mitch Michaels, who was a DJ for WLUP. 
mm-hmm. Mike Vec came to me and said, get on the PA and see if you can get these people off the field. So we did what we what we would do at a concert, a chant of back to your seats. We were making a little progress. People were starting to move out a bit. Then Harry Carey, the popular White Sox sportcaster, comes up, grabs the microphone and says, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> oh, well, of course he would be there. I didn't even think about that. Oh, my God. That's yeah, he was like, I was like, my God. Michaels goes on to say, when Harry Carey says, give me the microphone, you give Harry Carey the microphone. We lost the momentum. Holy cow. Seriously. I mean, this is like when you just get the, the hair. Oh, he, he's just like, I just came to call a game. Right. And Beck recalls Harry was a pro. He was the dance band on the Titanic playing through the disaster. My favorite image is my old man and Harry standing at home plate with the soxogram, the scoreboard message board, reading, please return to your seats. <laughs> For some reason, they don't ask Dahl to go try to get people back to seats. And at some point in time, Harry's singing, take me out to the ballpark because kids rioting about disco are going to be in- impacted by the seventh inning stretch. Right. Not going to ask. Yeah. He's not there for baseball. Right. Not there for baseball. I mean, go Cubs go would have been an equally a bad choice. Yes. After 40 minutes of mayhem, the police arrive on horses in riot gear. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm. 39 people are arrested. Okay. They didn't play the second game because all the bases were gone. Someone even stole home plate. The Sox forfeited, or as Dahl likes to say, he is 1-0 and against the Tigers. Now, video didn't kill the radio star, and his career skyrocketed. Yep. This is from Mike Beck. My old man said it best. It was a promotion that worked too well. Then my dad went out and took the public berating for me. I'm the one who triggered it. My old man did what a good leader does. He took the heat. Bill Vecht sells the team to Jerry Reinsdorf in 1981. Two years later. Two years later. Uh, Mike had a, a rough decade. Afterwards, during which time he named his son Night Train. Oh. Again, I recommend the saint of second chances. Today, I actually interacted with someone, a Chicagoan, who's friends with Night Train, and he goes by Night Train. He does. <laughs> he does. That, that was the riot. But we're going to go into the cultural implications, and this is where the listeners get the local tea, the local flavor. 
full disclosure, again, we know people who know Dahl. A Rolling Stone critic named Dave Marsh was in attendance. And right after the event, he wrote this. Your most paranoid fantasy about where the ethnic cleansing of rock and roll could ultimately lead. White males, 18 to 34, are the most likely to see disco as the product of homosexuals, blacks, and Latins and therefore are the most likely to respond to appeals to wipe such threats to their security. Mm. Dahl wrote a book in 2016. It's out of print, and I'm not spending 100 bucks. But he denies racism and homophobia were an impetus for him. This is from an interview that he did with the Tribune in 2019. First of all, you can't look at something that happened 40 years ago through today through today's lens. Maybe we weren't woke, but we didn't know we were asleep. I just wanted to rock and roll, man. That's all. Wait, wait that was Doll. Uh, yeah. That was a quote. Yeah. Right. That was a quote from Doll. Mm -hmm. Until I listened to the episode of You're Wrong About. It never occurred to me that this could be racist or homophobic, but I'm a straight white lady. Mm -hmm. So here we go. I mean, it's right. It, it's happened many, many times before, of course, with voguing and other things that started the black or marginalized communities. Um, and with disco, it's like those black and Latinx and gay folks who, you know, who were enjoying that underground scene, it soon became the face of disco soon became like the Bee Gees, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, um, Nigel from uh, La Chic, is that? Nile Rodgers. Yes. He said that seeing, it, seeing the disco albums we burned was like a book burning. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Yeah. yeah. Now, my hairdresser, shout out Brian Katz of Aria Salon, used to listen to Steve Dahl. But more importantly, he was associated with Hell in a Handbag Productions. Love them. I struggled to describe H-I-H, Hell in a Handbag. Then I found a 2023 interview with the company's founder, David Serta, and he had this to say. Helena Handbag Productions is dedicated to the preservation, exploration, and celebration of the art of camp and parody via theatrical productions. We recognize camp as an aesthetic created queer, gay-slash-queer subculture, and we strive to propagate camp's subversive nature and horrifying truths. Ugly is beautiful and ordinary is grotesque in the camp universe. Nothing is off-limits. Handbag shows are a gathering place for the queer community and allies. We promote shared experiences of our queer history. So I feel comfortable calling them an LBGTQ company. Mm -hmm. I just mm -hmm. didn't want to put that label on them, you know. Well, and their audiences, I, I mean, I will say from personal observation, their audiences are everybody more and more. Um. Because they do, they do parodies of mainstream things. Like I believe my favorite show ever was The Birds. Did you see that one? I did not. Yeah, which was, but like, yeah, yeah, genius. They're genius. 
a press release went out with media photos of Brian dressed as Jane Mansfield. Dahl got the media kit. And he was on air and he was confused if he was looking at a real lady or not, which Brian chucks up to being remarkably skilled at what he does. So Tina, the costumer, called into the show and told him about the production. Steve went to go see it and became an enthusiastic fan of Helena Handbag, even playing Santa a few times and Rudolph the Red-Hosed Reindeer. Brilliant. I mean, first of all, the early aughts when people didn't try to get you fired for dressing in drag. Right, apparently. I mean, everything I know about Steve Dahl, I don't think he was a homophobe. Mm, okay. I mean, that's, and my hairdresser's like, listen, I listen, I'm a gay man. I listened to him for years. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, I mean, the, that quote you said from the, that other, the other guy, other gentleman, you know, who said he was feeling the feeling of like disco being elitist in the sense of it's just beautiful people. And I, I can't fit into that. Right. Yeah. But it, it feels, it felt much more inclusive than that. To well, me back in the day. But I guess it's wherever you're coming from. But I think it's also, though, if you think, and we'll get into this a little bit more, like with the next quote. Chicago is a raw and gritty town. I don't know that we were like, we're not like a Studio 54 town. No, no. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've never waited to get into a club in Chicago. I mean, I, 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 what's the most, I mean, most modern Famous music from Chicago house music, right? Is that yeah, our signature? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, okay. So one review said this about the out of print book: I was a freshman in high school when disco demolition happened, and it's frustrating to listen to people who weren't in Chicago or maybe even alive at the time try to rewrite history. Chicago was a rock town. And if anything, disco seemed elitist and superficial, and few Chicagoans seemed to want anything to do with it. It was a bunch of teenagers blowing off steam on a summer night and a radio promotion gone crazy. That's it. Now, Mike Vack can see that now he, for many reasons, but that for the, he was asked specifically about this and said, I wish I wouldn't have done it. Yes. Good. I'm not denying 1970s Chicago didn't have racism issues. I mean, for fuck's sake, we had Nazis. Mm-hmm. I'm not even saying that racism and homophobia wasn't a driving force for some of Steve Dahl's fans. Mm-hmm. But I'm willing to grant Steve Dahl some grace because he was 24. Yeah, I get it, but it's also like, you know, what is the saying? The intent, in some ways, the intent doesn't matter. It's how it looks. And he just, he clearly did not, he did, he clearly did no research at all on this, what this might mean to people, right? He just right. did it. He just did it. In that sense, is that if that's what you're saying, yes, it was impetuous action of youth. I get it. Yeah. I mean, many of us, regret things we did and said in our early 20s uh, yeah fortunately his was on a very large scale it was international news yeah we just had sexual harassment fridays right 
I'm going to read from an NPR article. Also at the game was a teenage usher named Vince Lawrence, who says he hoped to snag a few disco records to take home. Then an inspiring musician who was saving up money for a synthesizer, he said he was one of the few African-Americans there that night. Soon he began to notice something about the records some people were bringing. Quote, Tyrone Davis records, freaking Curtis Mayfield records, and Otis Clay records, he said. Re- records that were clearly not disco, but they were by black artists. Yeah. 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 Now, saying this was the end of disco is debatable. However, what came next was house music that was born here in Chicago and pioneered by former usher Vince Lawrence using records he took from Disco Demolition. Brilliant. Uh huh. And Dolls likes the house music genre. Mm-hmm. At one point in time, they were. There was a mu- movie script in the works. Hmm. And Dahl said that he would be played by Jack Black or Louis Anderson. Interesting. And I mean, is the world ready for Disco Demolition, the musical? Call hell in a handbag. I that I was. <laughs> I see this as an early example of a culture war in the fight of what should or should not be valued. You know, some disco artist ended up becoming a huge homophobe. Um, and, and Steve Dahl became supportive of a declared LGBTQ theater community. Mm-hmm. I have complicated thoughts about it. Yes, it's fair. It is complicated. Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't think it was going to be that complicated. Yeah. Like, on one hand. I can get. Feeling like it's for the shiny people. Mm-hmm. And feeling like you don't fit in. Particularly if you're an 18, 19-year-old kid. But is part of this... Yes, but if... Okay, 1979. So is part of this just... Also a part of what they had access to? Because they were getting all of their music from local radio stations. But at that point, there was punk. And there was starting to be you know 80s music and there was starting there must have been starting to be hair bands but they just didn't have any way to access it that's what it is mm-hmm. i mean that was, i mean that, that, that must have been going then right what acdc must have been in operation then yeah i think it's just at all the stations yeah so there that was their conduit and because of the trends in the radio industry trying to monetize whatever we want to listen to they changed it all to disco mm-hmm because they thought that would make the most money. And immediately, I'm trying to be really delicate because I don't want to, I don't want to downplay the marginalized group's experience here. Mm-hmm. I just found it interesting. Well, here's the thing. So I have a coworker who really, a lot of people say this, like the worst thing that can happen is to have bored white boys because they will fuck shit up. Mm -hmm. And, and I I mean, this is like a microcosm of it. Yeah, absolutely. You gave him, he gave him a platform. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. But also the other side of it, interesting that the uproar and the attack and was all on disco and not the, what I assume is the white straight guy programmers in radio who did that. Not against them, right? Right. But against this actually a genre of music. A genre of music that people like. I mean, one of the good things about living now, living here now in this era is we can just listen to what we want to listen to. Well, yes. And we have much more access to many. Yeah. I mean, I don't know in 1979 how much a radio player, I mean, a record player cost. Yeah. I don't know how much records cost. I grew up as, I, I was a new wave girl. Shocking, I know. Mm-hmm. And a musical theater girl. There weren't radio stations playing that. Right, correct. Mm-hmm. I had to... Go ahead. I had to go buy New Order Substance on disc. Well, right. In the 80s, it was like either is either doing what the radio station gave you. Mm-hmm. College stations were starting to come in, right? So you could get some cool stuff on college stations. But other than that, it was like trying to find rock and roll magazines or going to a record store if you could afford it and listening to the recommendations or what your friends. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I I don't want to come off as like a white boy apologist because I'm anything but that. Mm -hmm. But it's also, it just had me look at Look at it with more compassion is what I'll say. It's interesting. Yes, it's, it is much more culturally complicated than I thought also. I, I, I mean, I did know about the history of disco, but, but yes, just the, the fact of giving, where do you assign blame in the fact of giving somebody a platform mm-hmm. who maybe should not have that sort of platform because of where it comes from? Um, well, when did... Do you know when after this that uh, the disco format sort of started leaving radio stations? Almost immediately. Yeah. It was definitely early 80s, right? Because it be- went back to pop and, and um, new wave and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I can <laughs> also... That's rock. Cool. Yeah. But I can also see, too, here's an analogy. In Illinois, when weed became legal... Some people just stopped smoking weed because it wasn't cool anymore. Like, if you're an edgy underground person doing disco, and then all of a sudden there's an Ethel Merman disco record, yeah, there's part of me that would want to be like, give me my shit back. For sure. For sure. And I do get, I do get, I absolutely get being at that age and raging against what the the majority culture is trying to give you or not even majority culture it's really the you know corporate culture is trying to give you right and you feel helpless to stop that yeah right and they're at that age when and like i liked the quote was like we didn't have a war yeah that's interesting but that the place billy, of anger yeah billy joel wrote a whole song about it yeah, I remember that. Called Angry Young Man mm-hmm. with his fist in his hand or whatever. Oh, my God, I can't remember Billy Joel lyrics. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's um, 
you know, corporate people made disco really, really uncool yep. for a long time. Well, yep. It was their specialty. Yep. Which is their specialty. I mean, you know, and what I want to say, I, I, I think the whole thing is far more nuanced than I assumed. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you look at it now, it's no different than, you know, we have a big problem with young white boys getting radicalized, mm-hmm. which is far more detrimental than what Steve Dahl did. Well, yes. Yeah. And it is, you know, it is looking at it and I don't have answers, but I, I want a society that functions where Andrew Tate is not appealing. Mm-hmm. And it's what collectively can we do to prevent that? Yes. And how, if we understand that there is going to be that anger, mm-hmm. that anger is there. How do we, as a society, make the choices to not give people whose platform will be to stoke that and use that to their own gain and use it for evil, as opposed right. to to solve it together? Right. To like look at you know, to have to have you know some compassion for you know. Boys and girls, both. Everybody that does, that they don't feel like they fit in. You know, they're a little fat or yes. chubby, or you know, or acne or what? You know, I don't know. It's been a long time since I've been that age. Yeah. But to you know, to yeah, and then you add right, and then you add socio. Economic issues mm-hmm. in, and institutionalized racism, and then you, yes, yeah. Well, yeah. fascinating, fascinating little blip. Yeah, yeah. When I found out that they, they were having sex on the field, I'm like, "What the hell is happening here?" <laughs> I mean, it also just gives you this glimpse of fifty nine thousand people. Like, they just disregarded fire codes clearly. Mm-hmm. I'm just picturing if they, in the movie Will Ferrell doing his. His Harry Carey impression just wandering through him, like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot that I didn't put in there, like, like, because they thought they were going to play the game, the second game, but yeah. it was clear that there was a hole in the middle of the field, and there was tons of record debris. Who are not going to play that game? But they were starting to go to the, you know, go and warm up. And they're like, no, we got. They were hiding in the clubhouse. Besides the people who got arrested, and um, uh, and I guess the so the Sox had to forfeit the second game. The league made them forfeit. Were there fines? I don't think so. Okay, I don't think so. Um, the league made them forfeit. I don't think there were any fines because nobody brought that up. And I've got like, I have watched this coverage from the night of. Local sports coverage. I've watched documentaries. I've watched so many interviews with Steve Dahl. I have watched so much, and nobody brought up a fine. Okay. Well, I guess if you're, you know, if 
the owner of the team has okayed this, you know, this stunt and the damage is done to his own place. It's like, who are you going to find? Well, it's the, it's the second, it, it's the um, second time in history or oh, this has only happened twice that they've had to like forfeit a, a major league team. And the other one was, um, I don't know if it was dime or nickel beer night at Cleveland Browns. Mm. Um, which you can also understand how that would be. Um, 10 cent beer night. Yes. Um, also resulted in a riot. So we're doing good on the riot part in the uh, good old American League Central. Anything else for you? No. Thank you for bringing all that up. It's a fascinating cultural, it really is fascinating cultural moment. And it would be interesting. It would be fascinating to get this movie, this story into the hands of, you know, a really interesting filmmaker. It would. And I do, again, recommend Saints or Second Chances. Great. It's a great documentary on Netflix. My parents watched it. It's about this, but it's more about redemption. Great. Which is, and rehabilitation, which is something we've talked about on the show. Yeah. No, it sounds um, awful. So, listeners. Oh, wait. Do you have anything you want to promote? I'm good. Thank you, friend. All right, and now on to the outro. Listeners, I appreciate you. The way the White Sox do promotions. Subscribe faster than it took to fill Kaminsky Park on July 12th, 1979. Blow up the reviews and make Omalort an international sensation like Steve Dahl after Disco Demolition by telling your friends. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.